life and, and anti-life. But sin, here we learn, is that sin is, is a moral defilement. Now, we can think about sin in different ways, and the Bible encourages us to think of it in, in various ways, and all of which are true. The Bible does talk about sin as a breaking of God's law. So when you sin, you have disobeyed God. You've broken one of his commands. It's true. Okay? We think about it as breaking a command of God. But the Bible also talks about sin as moral defilement, as uncleanness, as sickness, as guilt. An illustration. There's a bucket of Ebola in the middle of the building. I don't know if you can put Ebola in a bucket, so don't fault me on that. But let's just imagine. There's a bucket of Ebola just sitting in the middle of the building, and, and a mom says to her, her son, don't touch that bucket of Ebola. Well, first of all, we know what happens when you, when you tell a son not to touch that bucket of something. And let's say that that son uh, doesn't listen to his mom. And he walks up, and he puts his hand in the bucket of Ebola. Well, two things. Two things we know. That son broke the command of his mom. He disobeyed his mom. That was wrong. He broke a command. But what else happened? He also is now unclean. He has defiled his hand. And the Bible wants us to think about sin in both of those terms. It is, yes, a disobedience to God's command, but it is more than that. You are infected. The Bible is very clear is that we sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. It's not the other way around. Our actions are sinful because they come from an infected person. Any sin that you committed was because it came from somebody who was already infected, an infected heart, a sinful heart. And that sin, that infection is rebellion against God. It is something that we are polluted with. It affects everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think is all infected by sin. Just like that person working in the infectious disease lab, they touch anything. Anything they do is affected unless they can find a way to become cleansed. So all of this is the background information that Mark is getting us to think about in Jesus is when he talks about the law of Moses and the rituals that were to be offered by the leper. So all of that is background here. So Jesus is approached by a man who has leprosy. Jesus is approached by a man who has leprosy. Verse 40, And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. If you will, says the leper, if you will, you can make me clean. I want you to notice that this is not a demand. Did you notice that? It's not a demand. It's not something that was required. It's not something that Jesus owed this man. It was a request. It wasn't a casual request. Like, you know what? If you want to, I'd be okay with you doing that. No, it's not, a casual, it's not a casual request. He is imploring him. Do you notice that? He's imploring him. 
But nevertheless, even though he's imploring him, it's a very serious request. It means so much to this man. He is imploring Jesus, and yet it still is a request that depends on the will of Jesus. It would have had to be Christ's free choice to heal this man. Christ's will, it means it would have been a gracious choice. Purely grace. No, the leper doesn't say, if you were any good at all, you'd make me clean. The right thing to do is for you to make me clean. You owe it to me if you're God. You have to do this for me. Though the way he implores Jesus, he's actually forbidding himself from accusing Jesus later if Jesus, in fact, chooses not to make him clean. The way he asks is saying, if you didn't do this, I surely would be sad, but I couldn't accuse you of being unjust. You don't have to do this, but I sure need it. He has confidence that Jesus is able to do this. Jesus had already healed many diseases, cured many people. He already has demonstrated that he is able. The question here is, is he willing? Will he do this? Mark tells us why Jesus did it. Did you notice that? It says that he is, verse 41, he's moved with pity. Doesn't say he did it because it was the right thing to do. Doesn't say that it was required of him. The pity of the defiled to pity this man was God's will. This really is a lovely illustration, as all of Jesus' miracles are, of God's response to the rebellion of sinful man. No one could have blamed God for leaving us in our defilement. No one could have blamed God after Adam and Eve sinned to just condemn them, send them to hell, and walk away. No one could have demanded it from God that he do anything other than condemn them. But he did. He freely chose to save sinners. He freely chose to pity us who had not just done the sin, but had become sin. It's not just an action that we commit. It is something that we now are. We are defiled. And yet he freely chose to save people who we're so sinful that they were defiled by it. It's now part of our identity and our character that we are now enemies of God. And so looking at enemies of his, he freely chooses to have pity on them. John three sixteen and 17 very clearly demonstrates this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now you might think, well, of course he loved them. They're pretty good. He would have had to do that. They're innocent and it would be wrong for God not to pity these people and to save them. But you have, we have to finish reading this section, verse 17. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh yeah, so Jesus isn't condemning the world. The world's innocent. No, keep reading. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus 
being sent is because God freely chose, freely cho- chose God's free will to have pity on condemned enemies whose problem is not merely that we have committed treason, but that we are treasonous. Not merely that we have committed actions that were hateful toward God, but that we are at our core, unredeemed, at our core people who actually hate God, haters of God. And so Christ's cleansing of this unclean man was because of pity, compassion, and mercy. If you were to walk up to this leper and say, how did you become clean, O leper? He'd say, well, because Jesus was able and he cleansed me. And then if you asked him, why did Jesus cleanse you, O leper? Was it because you showed him that he needed to? Oh, no. Was it because God's goodness required him to do it? No. Again, no. Well, then why? He freely chose to have pity on me. Dear church, dear unbelieving guests, God has had mercy toward a defiled people. Not just people who have sinned, but people who are sinners. Sin being haters of God, rebellious. And we talk about free will often, but what we must not lose is this true and important statement of God's free will. It is free. God was not bound to pity us. He was not bound to save us. And yet, He does. And the sign is healing the leprosy. But the sign points to something greater. And the reality that it points to is the cleansing of sin. And so this leads us to a few questions for personal reflection. Friend, do you realize that you are defiled? When you you look at your sin, when you look at your life, when you look at the ways maybe that your life doesn't line up to Scripture, do you really, do you see it as defilement? Do you see it as, as just, you know, missing or getting a few answers wrong on a math test? Or do you see it the way that this parable, or this, this parable, it is a parable, but more than that, it's a miracle. This miracle demonstrates what it is, that this is an infectious disease. This is, this is guilt. This is defiled. You are unclean. Do you see yourself that way? Do you long for cleansing? I think most people long for forgiveness. They don't want to be treated according to their sin. But do you long for actual cleansing? Do you really long for Christ to make you clean? Not just to forgive you. Everybody wants that. But do you actually want him to make you clean? Make you a person whose heart loves God. Who makes you now no longer an enemy, but actually a child who loves their father and wants to obey. And then do you trust that Christ is able to do it? Do you trust that Christ alone is able? Do you think you can make yourself clean? Are you trusting on maybe you making yourself clean and Jesus helping you with that? Or do you trust that it would be completely his work alone? Maybe when you think about salvation, you you think about it as a, a gift that is deserved. But this is a picture of saving faith. 
And he promises for all who have that faith, all who recognize that they are defiled, not just incomplete, could use some improvement, but defiled. Everybody who recognizes that they are defiled and who desire to be clean, desire to be pure, desire to be holy, and who trust that Christ alone is the one who can give them that. We don't need to wonder what God's will is for those people. He has already promised. Everyone who has such faith, it is his will to save. We need to realize that there was a great cost for Christ to cleanse you. It wasn't merely a decision to save you. It was a decision to do something costly to save you. And that brings us to our next point. Christ became defiled to cleanse the defiled. Let's see this. Christ became the defiled to cleanse the defiled. 41 and 42. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now, we know that Christ is able to cleanse leprosy with a simple word. All he needed to do is say, be clean. We know that. He had the power to do that. Jesus doesn't need to touch people in order to save them, to heal them. And yet, he chose to do this. He could have said to this man, like he said to the storm, when he, when he uh, calmed the storm, he could have just said, as he said to the storm, peace be still. He didn't need to touch the storm to make it stop. No, he had the authority in his words to say that. And he had the authority in his words to say this to the leper, be clean, be healed. But instead, he reached out his hand and touched him. Why is that a big deal? Was it just literally the, the compassionate touch of somebody who's suffering and you want to comfort them? Is that what he was trying to show? Oh, it's much more than that. What happens if you touch a person who is unclean in the Old Covenant? You become ceremonially unclean. He became ceremonially unclean, Jesus did. He touched a ceremonially unclean man. Christ forfeited his own access to the temple. He forfeited his own access to the people of God. And Christ willingly agreed to be treated as a defiled man. Now, we actually don't have any reason to believe that Jesus from that point forward was calling out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, and that he, he avoided going into the temple. But this was a living parable to show you how he would save defiled people. The cost to save defiled sinners, the cost to save you and me from our defilement was at the cost of Christ's greatest delight, which was his access to the presence of God for blessing. That sin, that defilement of ours, is not something that God could ignore. The guilt that we have is not something that God just gets over. It's not something that wears off or fades as God becomes emotionally more stable over the situation. No, God said that there would be a punishment of all sin. So how is it that Christ could cleanse us of our defilement 
Well, him reaching out and touching that leper is a living parable of how he would save us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21. Let's read that. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how Christ saves us. He, here in verse 21 He is the one who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. He had no sin of his own. He never committed a sin. Not a sin of thought, not a sin of desire, not a sin of word, not a sin of action. Not a sin of doing the wrong thing and not a sin of not doing the right thing. He knew no sin. He was pure. He was completely undefiled. You point to that man and say, he is pure. He is righteous. He is holy. There's no sin in him. The only man who ever lived that you could say that about. The only undefiled man. He knew no sin, verse 21. But what what did God do for, for us in order to save us? It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Just like Christ touching the leper in order to make him clean. Would have made him ritually unclean. Dear friends, this is how Christ saves sinners. On the cross, he was not just showing you how much he loves you, although he was certainly doing that. But he became sin. He became sin. He took on our identity. He took on all our uncleanness. He took on our, if you use the illustration, all of our Ebola. And he was punished instead of it. The law was very clear. Every single sin would be punished by the wrath of God. And so, the beauty in the gospel is that for those who know Christ, who have faith in him, is that our sin is punished when Christ was wearing it. Christ became sin. He exchanges statuses with us. Guilt versus righteousness, clean versus unclean. And in that moment, he forfeited his ability to be in God's presence and be blessed. In that moment, he forfeited the thing that was most precious to him, which is to be in the presence of his Father and be blessed. And instead, he was in the presence of God the Father and cursed And he did this for us. He was damned for our moral filth. The Bible talks about him being damned for our filthy rags. Now, dear friends, we can talk about how you can have confidence that God will not hold your sin against you. And let me just be very clear that the thought that you can be sure God will not hold your sin against you 
The, the thought that you, can, that you can be sure about this is simply because God just got over your filth. He just got over it. It stopped bugging him. That is not a good comfort. Because what happens if he decides to look at the books again? You know, there's a couple of times in the Old Testament where a king is kind of bored and he's like, let's look at the records. What, so what happened if God did that? And he just, even though he got over your sin and he got over your defilement, what would happen if he just looked at the books again and all of a sudden got unover it and decided to be bothered by it again? What would happen if he would do that? Oh, we know that that is not going to happen because he, we have a better comfort. Not merely that God got over your sin or he stopped being bothered by sin or that he just decided not to have wrath, but instead that your filth was taken off of you and put on his son. And while his son was wearing your filth, he punished him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation for that person. Dear friends, we also need to realize that Christ's touch was a cleansing touch. What is shocking is that miraculously, the purity of Christ was that which was contagious. Brother Roger read for us this morning from the book of Haggai, and, the, and, and uh, the question is asked, if you're clean and you touch something that's unclean, does that make that thing clean? And the answer is, well, surely not. If you have a defiled garment and you touch something with like some blood or some uh, Ebola or some raw chicken and you touch something clean, what happens? Does it spread? In fact, it does spread. And this is the miracle that it worked the other way around. Dear friends, there is a false gospel that infects the Christian world. And that is God's acceptance of moral filth. That God just accepts it. The gospel is that God accepts your moral filth. That's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. And it is proven false by this miracle. He proves he does not accept our sin. He surely does not prove that he no longer calls it sin. He just calls it good now. He proves that he has come to cleanse us of our sin. He has come to cleanse us of our sin, not simply to get over it. Dear friend, if you've come to Christ by faith, if you only come to him for forgiveness and not cleansing, When you came to Christ imploring him, was it simply for forgiveness or also for cleansing? If you did not come to him with the desire to be cleansed and trusting that the cross also cleanses you, then you did not become a Christian. And friends, a church is a place for people to flee sin. It is a place where we flee from sin. We flee sin and run to Christ. It's not a place where we become more and more comfortable with sin. Christ's interactions with sinners was not to enjoy their sin. It wasn't to prove, uh, to prove that he can just be okay with it. It wasn't to prove that sin and holiness get along well. But this miracle was a sign that he comes to make us clean. And so this passage is not 
in conflict with the Bible's warnings to choose your friends wisely. And that path, those passages are not in con- conflict with the Bible's uh, uh, ins- uh, insistence that Christ is a friend of sinners. And so young people, old people, parents, friends must be chosen, wi- chosen wisely, but we do not refuse to share the gospel with people, to offer Christ with sinners. We do not refuse to share the gospel or to offer the gospel to those who hate God and live as if they do. We do not refuse to call sinners to repentance and offer the gospel to all. There is no sin that defiles too great that we ought refuse to share the gospel and reach out with people. Christ's touching of the leper was to make the leper clean. Dear friend, are you burdened with guilt? Maybe all this talk of defilement and guilt is something you're like, I know already! My problem is not that I don't think I'm guilty. I know that. Why do you keep saying that? Yes, there's people who are sure they're not guilty. That's not mine. Are you burdened with guilt? Do not be tempted with the shortcut of self-acceptance or that it's not sin or that God doesn't think sin is unclean. And do also not be Uh, tempted by the shortcut of, I can work this off myself if only I can live five days without that sin, or ten days, or two hours, or maybe three months. Don't be tempted for that. God has given you a better confidence and a better cleansing. We have a greater remedy for guilt, and that is Christ knew your filth. In fact, He sees it as more filthy than you do, and yet moved with pity. He took that upon himself and took it with him to the grave and left it there. How do I know this is true? It's fine to say this. Anybody could say this. I could claim this about myself and you should fire me immediately. <laughs> I can make people clean. Anybody can claim this. How do we know that this was true, that Jesus was able to do that? And that's our third point that I'm pretty sure, we're sure, I'll show you that this is true, that Mark wants us to notice, and that is if the cleansing of a defiled person is proven. Verse 30, uh, 43 to 44, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, See that you say nothing to no one, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now the question is, can a leper be healed? Now, the law of Moses, specifically Leviticus 14, and if you've got time, read Leviticus 14. We're not going to today. But Leviticus 14 gives really clear and long details about what should happen if a leper is pretty convinced that they've been healed, that they've been made clean. They go to the priest, and the priest examines them, and they offer this sacrifice, and they do this ceremony, and they have this wonderful ceremony. And there's one, if you're poor, that, you're, that there's a special one for if you're poor, so that even if you are poor, that the cost wouldn't be too great so that you couldn't be cleansed. And there's this wonderful celebration that now you get to go to the temple again. But it had to be verified by a priest. It had to be proven. So Jesus tells this man, go. Go to the temple. 
go to the priest. I want you to do all of these things that are required in the law of Moses for yourself, but also to prove to them that a leper can be clean. But more than that, that a sinner can be made holy and that I am the one that God had always promised to do it. Friend, would you stand to be examined by the high priest of God? Do you say, I think I'm holy. I think, I think I'm holy. I think I'm pretty righteous. If there were a high priest who would be able to have access to every thought you had, every word that you said, every desire you had, every deed that you did or did not do, what would be the verdict of that priest? Guilty? Not guilty. Surely it would be guilty. Dear friends, this is why Jesus didn't just come to the world and say, by the way, I've forgiven everybody's sins. No, he lived a life that was verified by many human witnesses, lived for 33 years living a perfect human life, being examined by the crowds, being examined by the priests, being examined by the Pharisees, the lawyers, the people who were experts in God's law. And over and over and over again, they were unable to bring an accusation against him. Other than that, he falsely claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God, which would have been a sin if it wasn't true. He demonstrated that he was the one who was righteous, the one who would save sinners. It's one thing for somebody to be hung on a cross and say, I'm dying for other people's sin, not mine. How would you know, dear friends? How would you know if that person was lying? If they said, I'm dying for other people's sins and not my own, I'm innocent. God is damning me for other people's sins and not my own. How would you know if they're lying? Watch their grave. If they stay in it, they're lying. How did we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he claimed to be the one who would bear the sin of many to make them clean, to make them righteous in God's eyes, how would we know that he wasn't just talking at his ear? Oh, that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. And this is why we celebrate Easter, not because we like resurrections. We don't like death. No, because this was God proving a proof that your sins are forgiven if your faith is in Christ. So next time, dear Christian, and I'm only talking to people with faith in Christ and the gospel. Next time you feel guilty and defiled and feel gross and you feel disgusting and you feel like you are so sinful that God would not accept you, the next time you think about that, you think about Christ. Did he rise from the dead? Because if he did, then God declares you forgiven. He declares you clean. And he promises to treat you that way, not just temporarily, but as long as Christ deserves to be treated that way. And then we see the confidence that this, that, that this what is produced by this confidence. Our fourth and fifth points go, go together. The cleansing of the defiled leads to thanksgiving. Look at 44 and 45. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. 
Lots of debate in church history as to whether this man sinned. And if he did sin, what was his sin? It's actually not entirely clear what's going on here. But what we do know about Jesus' command was that Jesus wanted, he wanted one thing and he didn't want another thing, okay? Jesus wanted that this healing, this cleansing of this man be verified according to the law of God. He wanted this to be proven. So it wasn't just somebody saying, I feel clean. No, you are clean. It could be declared. But the other thing that Jesus didn't want is he didn't want Palm Sunday yet. Today's Palm Sunday. Surprise. This is a Palm Sunday sermon. Jesus didn't want Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, all of Israel came out and and declared him king. Hosanna, the son of David. God has come to rescue him. Make this man king. Make this man king. He didn't want that yet. It wasn't his time. Because he knew that that was only appropriate if it was tied right to the cross. Palm Sunday is tied to Good Friday and it's tied to Easter Sunday. And he would not have them separated. He was not trying to gain a following or a crowd. He wasn't trying to gain glory for himself. And that's why he said, don't say anything to people. I'm not doing this. I'm not motivated so that people will see me as a great person and make my life better. This tells us about Christ's motivation. He did not want Palm Sunday without Good Friday. He would not have it until then. And we see, though, this man is clearly moved by this. He can't keep his mouth shut. And just like if you were walking around the mall with Ebola on your shoulders, it would not, it would be spread pretty quick. So too this man's thanksgiving spread. The news spread. Which is our fifth point, that the cleansing of the defiled is contagious. In the same way that disease spreads, that word is chosen very intentionally, friends. He's meant for us to think of spreading. In the same way that the disease spreads, now the cleansing, the news of the gospel is spreading. And Jesus is no longer able to enter a town in peace. And so he goes out to the desolate places, which is where? Who normally lived? Well, that would be where the lepers usually lived, apart from the people of God. People would flock to him from every quarters, all quarters, rich and poor, slave and free. The spread of the gospel will not be be stopped. You can't stop it. Christ promised that it would spread to every corner of the world. And here we are, it's even reached Transcona. Because Christ died for people in Transcona. If he took our defilement on the cross... He will surely give us his salvation. If he suffered for our relationship with God on the cross, he will surely make sure we get it. And so he will make sure that the gospel goes to every single person for whom he died. And he will make sure that they have faith. How do we know that this will be successful? Is it because we're good at sharing the gospel? Is it good because we're good at receiving the gospel? No. We know this will be successful because... The Holy Spirit is God. And he was sent to make sure that the gospel reached every single ear who was paid for by Christ's blood, who Christ was defiled instead of them. So, friends, this is the new natural impulse for those who are saved by the gospel. 
the spreading of the gospel. Now, we can be afraid to share the gospel with our neighbors or our city. Maybe that we're afraid that the contagion will be reversed. Maybe it's because we're, we're pretty confident that those people wouldn't be saved by the gospel. We're pretty sure that they wouldn't be saved by the gospel. They wouldn't believe it. Maybe it's because we care very little about the glory of God. Maybe it's because we have forgotten the reality that we actually were people who were just as lost as anyone else. Forgotten that God's grace will make us thankful deliverers of the gospel. And so, dear church, you know the gospel. Over and over we share it. Not as a boring repetition, but as a glorious, glorious source of our hope. You know it. You know the gospel from every single passage of Scripture. We walk through Isaiah and you could share the gospel from every passage in Isaiah. You know it. Christ died instead of sinners. He died for the sin of sinners. He was damned instead of us. And he rose from the dead to reconcile us to God. You know that. Who knows you but that doesn't know the gospel? Don't assume they would not believe. If God could save you and me, he surely can save that person. Who knows you that does not know the gospel? Tell them the gospel. Tell them the gospel. He has promised it will be successful in saving every single person who he intends to save with it. Pray for this. Seek it out. We'll close with the following reminders from this passage. That if you are defiled by sin, if you've not trusted in Christ, if you, are defiled, if you are, remain in your sin, you have no access to God's house. You will not be received into heaven and God does see you as a guilty enemy. But dear friends, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that God simply got over your defilement. It's that Christ took it instead of you. And so I want to be very, very clear. If you are in Christ by faith, there is no condemnation for you. You may feel guilty. The world might accuse you of that. But you are in Christ. There is no condemnation for you. And if we have been made holy, dear friends, we ought to live as those who have been made holy. We ought to live by our new identity that Christ has given us. We once were, but we were washed. We were purified. We were cleansed by the blood of Christ. So let's walk in that forgiveness and in that righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are as defiled as you say we are. And that on the days in which we feel that our sin is most vile, um, even that is not, um, we, we're still missing how bad sin is, how wicked it is, how unclean it is. So we agree with you about what you say about our sin, but Lord, we also agree with what you have said about our Savior, that Christ has borne our sin so that we would be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, we rejoice. 
When we look at our sin, it is not just to beat ourselves up and say, oh, how terrible I am, but to see how great of a Savior we are that reached out and bore our sin, became sin, so that we could enjoy what he enjoys the most, which is his relationship with you. And dear Father, I pray that you would make us people who are gospel-contagious people, who are confident that this will spread to every single nation, every type of person, and it will not fail to save even one person whom you have purchased with your blood. I pray that you would do that work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.